There we go. So we're in this series called The Story, thinking about the big story of the Bible from beginning to end. We're doing it in four, which seems slightly uh, insane, probably. And the four uh, kind of titles that we have, last week was The Promise, today is The Preparation, next week The Proposal, and then the final week The Party. So that's the progression that we're going to take through the Bible. And uh, we're kind of looking more than just dividing it into four and going one quarter at a time. We're thinking kind of the whole story four times, but with an emphasis that progresses in terms of where we are in the Bible. So last week we were really rooted at the beginning. We spent a lot of time in Genesis thinking about God's generosity, his giving nature, how he created everything so abundantly. But then we messed it up. Humans uh, fell. The Bible talks about sin. Uh, This really is talking about rebellion against God, saying, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I want to be in charge. I am the center of everything. You're not. And that corrupted absolutely everything. And at that moment, the point where if you were God or if I were God, we would say, surely it's simple. Just wipe it out and start from scratch. Make a new being. But that's not the kind of God that we have. The kind of God that the Bible reveals to us is a God who leans in when we throw all of our rebellion toward him, he leans in and he makes promises. He made a promise right at the beginning and he has fulfilled that promise and we're going to think about that a little bit more. And that's really what we were doing last week. And today we're going to fill that picture in because from the point of the promise to the fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, there's about 4,000 years at least of, of human history. There's about three quarters of the Bible. That's a lot of pages, a lot of words. And so what is it that's going on? Because we looked at some predictions, we looked at some anticipation, but surely that could have been on half a page. And why would it need 4,000 years? Why would it need, what is it, 800 and something chapters, 900 odd chapters to get to the point of fulfillment? So we're going to ponder that a little bit this afternoon. Now, Uh, This series is kind of an interesting one. You could call it cheating, if you like, but this is kind of a series of the Bible in four, but we're taking advantage of the midweeks by giving some supplementary materials. Okay, so you're thinking, nah, it's the Bible in seven, we knew it, there's a catch. But we're just saying, actually, there's some things that we'd love to cover on Sundays, we just don't have time, uh, and this may be useful to you. So last week, we produced uh, a document that gave 12 reasons why we can trust our Bibles. And so if you get the church emails, you'll see a link. If you don't and would like to have access to that material, just let me know afterwards. This week, there'll be a, probably a document and an audio recording that kind of talks you through it to explain the shape of the Bible. What is going on with 66 books in the Bible? How does that make sense? And so we'll be doing that this week and then next week something else. Okay, so that's the, the plan. Let me show you the slide from last week just to bring it back to memory or to introduce it if you want. The seed of the woman, the promise that God made right at the beginning when sin entered was that the male human that is to come, the seed of the woman, which is awkward phrasing in English and it's supposed to be uh, because you kind of think of the seed of the man, but it's the seed of the woman that is ultimately going to crush the head of the serpent, the one who brought sin uh, really into the picture. That's going to be dealt with. And so from that point on, the people in the Bible were looking for the promised deliverer, the the seed of the woman. In fact, when Eve had a son, she said, this is it. God has given to me a man. She thought this was the man. She was a little bit ahead of herself. But as time progressed, God gave more 
and more information. And so as sin seemed to rise up, God leaned forward, gave more promise. And so the seed of the woman is going to come down through the line of Shem. It's going to be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob. He's going to come through the line of Judah. Fast forward a few hundred years, coming in the family of David. And eventually we get to Jesus. And that's what we call the seed promise. It's like a, a red ribbon that runs through the Old Testament from the very first moment right the way to the coming of Christ about 2,000 years ago. Okay, so that is uh, a lot of history covered with just a few references. There's got to be more going on, and there is. There's something to fill out the story between beginning and coming of Christ. And that is uh, not just promise, but kind of a promise developed. The Bible talks in terms of covenant, God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. Our God is a God who puts himself into covenant with his people. Now you say, what's a covenant? It's an important and a good question. Okay, there's three options in terms of how we think of what a covenant is. We can think of covenant in terms of a contract. That's a type of a covenant. Uh, You know, two people, two parties, I'll do this, you do that. If you don't do this, I won't do that, you know. And it's it's an agreement, and and we have that all the time in business world, right? Or buying a house or whatever. There's contracts. Then you have covenants that we think of, I suppose, in terms of marriage, where there's a a mutual uh, commitment to the other, at least on paper, forever, Right? That's a, a covenant. That's stronger than a contract. You, you don't negotiate your way out of a marriage. If it's a covenant, it's a forever uh, covenant. It's, it's slightly stronger. It's different in form and nature. And then there's a third one, and we use it in terms of the word testament. Um, maybe, you know, testament, we don't use that word. Last will and testament. So when uh, elderly gentleman uh, Cyril finally dies, his last will and testament is read out. And people can argue as much as they want, but it's a done deal. He's determined that so-and-so is getting his car collection. That's it. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter. That is his last will and testament. And so those are three types of covenant slash contract. And the question is, if there's a lot of contracting or covenanting going on between God and or from God toward his people, what kind of covenant does he make? What we will naturally always assume is that it must be the, f- the first type, a contract. You obey, I will bless you. You do this, I'll bring you to heaven. You be good, and I will be pleased with you. But what we find as we go through the Bible is actually that is not the case. The vast majority of covenants that God makes with humans are much more like a testament or a covenant than they are like a contract. It's where God determines, irrespective of whether we deserve it, which we don't, irrespective of whether we obey, which we won't, God determines to bless and to give. It's part of the nature of who he is. And so we go through the Bible, we find that he makes covenant with Abraham, he makes covenant with David. These are huge promises and commitments that are all filling out the picture of that line that leads to Christ. And then the, later on, the prophets talk about a new covenant that God is going to make in the future. And we'll think about that in a few minutes. But that is, is kind of filling out that Old Testament story. And we have this series of covenants. It's kind of the covenant plan of God. And basically, we can be very, very encouraged that our God is not a primarily contract God, but a covenant God. 
Because if it was down to our performance, we would all be absolutely lost. There's no way that we could live up to his standards. But instead, we have a God who puts himself into covenant with us by will and testament, if you like, where he says, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will make my dwelling amongst them and so on. That's the kind of language. And so actually, just to kind of simplify it, I think in terms of what is it that that summarizes the covenant plan of God through the Old Testament? And I just use two words, two words that, that give us a picture of the covenant nature of God. And they are this, I will. I will. It's just a determination on the part of God. I will, and it doesn't have conditions. Praise God for that. God's plan is not dependent on us to be fulfilled. Now, as we go through the Old Testament, uh, we find that there are a whole series of these these I wills with Abraham, with David, the anticipation of the new covenant, but they're actually kind of spread out. 1800 BC, just less than 1000 BC, then sort of six, 700 BC. I mean, these are centuries that are passing between these promises. And it's tempting to think, come on, God, why don't you get on with it? If, if this is your plan, if this is your promise, why is it taking so long? Why does God take centuries to fulfill his purposes in the Old Testament? After all, if he had just got on with it, the Old Testament would have been a whole lot shorter and you know, kind of easier to read, maybe. And maybe we think about that in our own lives, too. Do you ever kind of wonder, why is it that God takes a long time to fulfill his purposes? Why is it that, that God gets a hold of a life and then it seems like a long, slow struggle? Why is it that God doesn't just come through? I mean, sometimes, don't you find yourself kind of rushing God a little bit in your own circumstances, your own situation? Okay, God, I'm coming to you in prayer, and I've got this plan, and you need to bless it, and it's brilliant, so just bless, okay? Do this and this and this and do it fast. You know, I had a good quiet time. We sang a new song at church. It was awesome. And so I'm kind of, you know, spiritually on fire right now. So God, if you don't mind, tomorrow when I open the post, there could be a check, you know, or, you know, when I go to work or sorry, uh, to a church gathering, there could be a certain somebody, you know, God, if you would just do it this way, it'd be perfect. And yet God seems to move a whole lot slower than we do, doesn't he? I find myself praying that kind of prayer this week. God, could you just do this and this and this? I know, you're welcome. That's a brilliant idea. Amen. And actually, you kind of go, hang on a second, Mead. Who's God again? Is it you or, or is it him? And if it's him, does he know what he's doing? And if he knows what he's doing and he can run the universe and he can rescue people from sin and death, could it be possible that he knows the right time to answer your prayer? <laughs> Okay, the Old Testament proves it. When we come through to the New Testament, describing that whole story being worked out, we saw it last week in Galatians 4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law. When the fullness of time had come. I struggle with that. I find myself saying, Lord, fullness of time, right now, go. Let the phone ring. Right now, come on, let me just check my email. 
And it seems like no matter how much I try to slow myself down and, and just say, yeah, I'm trusting you, Lord, your will be done, not my will, but yours be done. No matter how much I try to slow myself down, it seems like God often walks slower than I do. And that, that can get frustrating. And so we want to think about that. As we're thinking Old Testament, this great sweep of history, let's be thinking as well, can we trust God with timing issues in our lives? If he's got plans and purposes, if he's made promises, will he follow through and fulfill at the right time? Or do we need to rush him? Okay, so let's uh, go back to the beginning and think about the problem. Because when we're going from the seed of the woman promise right the way through to the coming of Jesus, we're actually talking about God's plan to resolve the entire problem. So it's kind of a big issue, right? It's not just the little stuff of our lives. It's the big issue. And the big issue that God has to address really is in three parts. When they sinned back at the beginning, their hearts turned cold toward God. They said, you know what? We don't love you. I love me. I despise you. I love me. And the hearts of humanity went so frigidly cold, it was like stone. We have stony hearts toward God. That's a huge problem if we're created to be in relationship with him. Not only that, initially they had the Holy Spirit at work and uh, communicating and connecting and uniting them together, but the Spirit was withdrawn. And so creatures that were created to be united by the Spirit are spiritless. That's a huge problem. And not only that, we also have this incredible weight of guilt hanging over us from the very beginning of human history, from the very beginning of our own existence, we're guilty. We fall short and we fall short and we fall short time and again. And so stony hearts, lack of spirit, and absolute total guilt, that's a major project that God needs to address, that God needs to overcome. And that's what he's working for through the Old Testament. That's what he's preparing for. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. But what's going on in the intervening period. Let's look at Galatians and um, Galatians chapter 3, which is on page 973, if you have one of the church black Bibles, which by the way, you're welcome to take. If you don't have a Bible, please take one. Uh, We'd love you to have it and use it. So Galatians chapter 3, and this is a letter that was written about 15, 20 years after Jesus was on earth. Okay, so it's looking backwards at this point. It's looking back to all the plans and and so on. And we're not going to go through this and explain it in detail, but I do want us to kind of pick up on some key words that will help make sense of what's going to come. So page 973, you'll see a, a big, bold number three that jumps off the page. And then as you trace down uh, the line, eventually you'll find a little title, The Law and the Promise, then a little number 15, drop down to 16. That's where we're going to start. So Galatians three sixteen, And this is what the writer says. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Well, I, I keep using the word seed, uh, which is the same word, but it just works better, I think. Um, so we'll just go with that. So it was uh, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or seed. It does not say and to seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed 
who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if we talk Old Testament, don't, don't close it, we're coming back to it. If we talk Old Testament, maybe one of the first words that comes to mind, if you've ever gone into it, is it's full of law. It's kind of heavy, it's kind of law-saturated, and if God is a God of covenant rather than contract, it certainly doesn't feel like it for a lot of the Old Testament, because it seems to be, you do this and I will do that, and if you don't do this, then I will smite thee, and it feels kind of heavy. And actually what the person here, Paul, is saying as he writes is, yes, there is law in the Old Testament, but it doesn't cancel or replace the promise which was already there for 430 years. The promise, the covenant came first. So why the law? That's where he goes next. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Let's drop down to verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. A lot of big words there. Okay, but you notice the talk about the law and how does the law relate to the promise and which is the way that we get right with God? Is it by keeping law or is it by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ? That, that's the, the issue that's being addressed, right? And what Paul is saying is, no, the law didn't deal with sin. It kept you and imprisoned you and, and guarded you up until the point when the fullness of time came and then God sent forth his son and we could place our trust in him. Christ was born under the law to rescue those under the law. So Old Testament then has a whole load of law. In fact, let me put a, an image up for you. You've got the law at the top there. That's one of the big, big images of the Old Testament. If we were to read on after Genesis, go into Exodus and uh, the God had made promises to Abram, Abraham that, that he would have a child. That was going to take a miracle, and he, it did. But ultimately, that he would have numerous descendants and that they would bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham was scratching his head going, come on, I can't see it. Have you seen my wife? But God gave him a child through his elderly wife. And then that child received the same promise, and then that child received the same promise. And if, by the time you get to the end of Genesis... There's progress. 70 people in the family. That's pretty good for four generations. 70 of them in Egypt. Then you turn the page into Exodus, the next book, and that 70 people over the course of a few centuries has grown into hundreds of thousands of people. They're now a nation that are held captive in Egypt. And so Exodus tells us the story of God delivering them out of Egypt 
so that in a sense the nation was born and they came out into the wilderness and the, the next few books are dealing with what happened in the wilderness. But there's this progression there. God brings them to this mountain and he gives them, first of all, the law. It's kind of simplified form here, but he gives them two stone tablets with ten commandments. These are what you should do. This is the restrictions. These are the guidelines, if you like. Guidelines not a great word. These are the restrictions. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. If you're going to be a million or two million people living in the desert with your hearts and the state they're in and the sin that's already going on, here's some law. And then he gives them a tent, a special tent. It was called a tabernacle. And they, they collected all the, the, the goods, the materials to make the tabernacle. They made this tabernacle. And that was where God dwelt. God's presence was right there in the midst of this huge camp in the wilderness. And then God gave them instructions on how to sacrifice. Because there was sin and so they needed to make sacrifices. And so they had this, this really kind of gross daily reminder of the seriousness of their sin. And so I've got three images up on the board to kind of represent that. The two tablets, the Ten Commandments, or the law. Then the tabernacle, this kind of worship center that later on would be replaced by the temple. Same kind of idea. And then the sacrifice. That's the altar. Okay, an image of the altar where they would take the animals, shed the blood, kill the animal, and offer a sacrifice to God because of sin. This whole system gets known as the Old Covenant. Okay, this was the, uh, if, if there's any contract between God and humanity, this is the closest we're going to get. As we read through the books, the early books of the Old Testament, God has taken this group of people, he's made them a nation, and he creates this kind of structure for them, including how he can be in their midst, even though his presence would destroy them, and, and how they could approach him, even though their sin means they're worthy of death. And so there's this whole system Established, It's called the Old Covenant. And this is really important for us to, to grasp because as the story goes on, as the history progresses, the, um, the, the story of the nation of Israel essentially is the story of a nation who continue to be unresponsive to a God who's given them so much. They don't take the law seriously. They don't take the tabernacle seriously. They don't take their sin seriously. And it's tempting for us to read that and to look at it and go, you know what? If they had, they'd have been fine. God had given them a perfectly good system. If they would just do what they were told, it would all be good between them and God. And so really what they needed to do was obey the law and worship God and make sure they give the sacrifices and all their problems would have been dealt with. But that would be to completely misunderstand what's going on in the Old Covenant. Think about it. First of all, the law. What is going on with the law? Why was the law given? Was it so that people could obey and learn to be good? Was it so that people could obey and earn credit with God? No and no. The Bible tells us law was given because of sin. That is, as you go through, what you find is as they sin, God adds more law. And as they sin some more, he adds more law. It's the same in our culture. We don't have laws against things that nobody does. Right? If, if everybody had always only ever driven really carefully, we would have no speed limits. But because there are some 
crazy people out there, that, you know, a bit of craziness and you have some law. It's a a constraint. It's a a kind of a fence to stop you from uh, disaster. But it doesn't create anything positive. It doesn't create goodness. Watching the speed signs doesn't make you a good driver. We don't celebrate the the speed camera every time we pass it and go, woohoo, I love speed cameras. Yes, they're the greatest thing. No, they're there and they're a constraint on us. Like the fences, the guardrails on the side of the road, they don't make us good drivers, but they stop us from being really bad ones. And that's what the law is for. It's really for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, or even for us today, if you want to use it this way, to realize that actually, whatever God's standard is, we fall so far short. We never achieve. We're never good enough. Oh, well, compared to that guy, I'm doing okay. God's not comparing you to that guy. He's comparing you to this standard, and we fall short. And so actually, the point of the law all the way through is to show us that there's a problem with our hearts. It's to be a continual reminder, oh, why did I do that again? Oh, why do I always fail in that way? And the law isn't a solution. It's a big beacon flashing in our consciences or in our lives to say, you need help. You need help to the core of your being because you're a sinner. And no matter how hard you try to stop, you can't help it, can you? You are sinful. And the law screams at us, you need help. Your heart needs help. What about the tabernacle, the tent? As you go through the Old Testament, you find that that they were amazed by the privilege of having this tent. But as the story progresses, they started to take it for granted. They started to live as if God's presence in their midst didn't really matter. Later on, it was replaced with a temple. It's the same thing. It's a building with God's presence in. And so you've got God's presence in the midst of his people, which screams at us, hey, we have a God who wants to live with us. He wants to be with us. But the temple or tabernacle have all these thick curtains and fences and boundaries and and gates. And it screams at us, you can't get close. God wants to be in your midst, but as sinners, there's no way in. And so it's just once a year, the high priest would take a a sacrificial animal, take the blood, go into the very center, the very core of the temple, and splash that blood on the, the, the mercy seat, as they called it, to represent the confession of the nation. And then he would leave, and that was it for another year. God dwells in our midst, but we can't get close. You see, the the point of the tabernacle of the temple is not just to to say, hey, worship is important or God wants to be with you. It's to say, you know what, here's a visual reminder that you do not have the connection with God that you should have. And so for uh, all those centuries, the tabernacle, the temple was there and people knew that on the inside, there's the presence of God in a special way, but they had no way in. Eventually, the presence of God left. We read in the book of Ezekiel how the temple had become this worship center for the the God, the sun God, and the insect gods. And, And God was so offended and hurt by the way they were treating his temple that the the presence of God, if you like, the spirit of God, he left gradually, sadly, poignantly, and the temple was bereft. There was no glory left. And, a, and the, 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 the sort of the statement was made, Ichabod, the glory has departed. The Old Testament is, in some ways, it's depressing to read. 
Because God is gracious and God gives and his people just shake their fists in his face. But that doesn't mean that somehow God had come up with a bad plan. He had come up with a plan to let them know their need. They needed something more than God's presence in a building. More than that, they needed something more than the altar of sacrifice. It's so hard for us to imagine what that was like for those centuries to to continuously have to bring animals, whether it was birds or sheep or bulls, whatever it was, and they would be brought and they would be killed and the blood would come out and there would be noise and there would be smell and then there would just be a horrific scene of death and then the animals offered and the smoke going up and then it would all happen again and again and again. And for the normal person in Israel, this was a a reminder that your sin is serious and the penalty for sin is death. And rather than you die, you can hold off that penalty with this animal. Horrific. And for hundreds of years, that was normal life for the people of God. Bring another animal, kill another animal, kill another animal, shed more blood. It wasn't a system designed ever to take care of sin. It was a system designed to be a holding pattern that points to a greater sacrifice. Surely those people who had hearts for God in the midst of that would have brought the animal and said, Oh Lord, one day, if only you could provide the perfect animal that could really take away my sins. One day, maybe this will be no more. That would be the cry of the heart really from someone that's longing for for what God really is about. And so the altar never took away guilt. It could only postpone. And so you've got a a whole system there in the old covenant law and presence of God and sacrificial system that all adds up to say we need help with our hearts. We need help in terms of the spirit of God who is distant from us. We need help in terms of our guilt. And where are we going to get that help from? Let me read to you another passage from the book of Hebrews. You can turn to it as well if you like. It's on page 1005. Again, this is written after Jesus. This is written right at the kind of the end of the life of the temple in Jerusalem. And so the writer is looking at the temple as it's about to be finished completely. The whole system is coming to an end. And he looks back to a time when the Old Testament prophets had anticipated that one day God would make a new covenant to replace this old covenant. The old covenant was about law written on stone. It was about uh, distance between humans and God. It was uh, about the uh, continual need for sacrifice and death. But the new covenant was God's promise to take care of the great problem. And so look at what it says here in Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 7. It says, For if that first or old covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, that is God, finds fault with them when he says, and now he's going to quote from one of the prophets, Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the 
Here's the hope they were looking forward to, or should have been. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they uh, shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and uh, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's one of the great promises of the new covenant that would deal with these issues. And he finishes off by saying, In speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one slightly less important. Something that we should give slightly less attention to. No. He makes the first one obsolete. It's done. It's finished. It's useless. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's quite a promise. And as the person writing to the Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah five, six hundred years earlier, at this point, he's saying, now that is fulfilled. Now we are living in the time of the new covenant. Think about it. All of the elements that the old covenant could only point out you've got a problem, the new covenant fulfills. Law. The law says you're a sinner. Try to, try to do this. Try to be this good. And we try and we fail and we don't try, but therefore we fail. And we try, but we fail. And we don't try and we fail. And, and the law just keeps screaming at us, you're a failure. You're falling short. You're a failure. But it's, it's out here and it makes no difference because in here there's this, there's this despot within me that controls me called my heart. And if it's stony toward God, it doesn't matter what I want because actually what I want is not to please him. God says, I'll take care of that in the new covenant. I'll give you hearts of flesh. I'll write the law on your hearts to bring a transformation from the inside out. That's what Jesus came to do. In the old covenant, there was this uh, tabernacle or the temple. It was a presence of God in the midst of the people, but they had no access. In the new covenant, we are the temple. God says, I will pour out my spirit on them. And the spirit of God dwells in us. If we are in the family of God, if we've trusted Christ as our savior, we have the spirit living within us. That is so much infinitely better than what they had back in the day with the temple. We have the spirit dwelling within. We have a close, intimate relationship with God, or at least the potential is there for it. And what about sacrifices? You'll notice that come to Trinity Chippenham week after week, come month after month, I promise you we will never have animal sacrifices here, thankfully. You never need to bring a chicken or a goat or a cow or a kangaroo. It doesn't matter. You don't need to bring it. We're never going to kill it here. Why? Because there is no more sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice has been paid. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus. It was Jesus who came to this earth. It says in Galatians, we read it last week, I quoted it earlier, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. And then what does it say? It then goes on to talk about giving us the spirit so that we cry from our hearts, Abba, Father. It was Christ who came to die in our place to, as the ultimate perfect sacrifice. His blood 
is the perfect sacrifice that wipes clean every one of our records if we will just accept it. So there's no guilt, no condemnation. They'll never be raised up and used against me. Whatever it is, and you know what it is in your life that comes to mind. It's gone, it's finished if you're Christ's. His blood has paid it all. And the spirit has been given. Now whether we know what that means or we experience the fullness of that or not is a different question. We'll talk about why sometimes Christians aren't perfect. I say sometimes, you know what I mean, always. Why is it Christians aren't perfect? We'll think about that in a couple of weeks. But, but we have the Spirit. That's amazing. We don't need to travel to Jerusalem and go into a building and do a ritual. We have the Spirit within us. And we have new hearts. If we have trusted Christ uh, as our Savior, if we've said, Lord, I'm sinful and I don't deserve anything but, but condemnation and judgment, but you've taken that from me and now you're offering me your relationship with your Father, I, I welcome that with open arms. I'm yours. Whatever, I'm, whatever the right words are, I'm yours. Forgive me. What, let me in, please. Whatever the words are, the words don't matter. It's the cry of the heart. Jesus, I've got nothing but you. You're my only hope. Here am I. And as we cry out to Christ, we receive a cleansing from our sin. We receive the benefit of the ultimate sacrifice. We receive the blessing of the Spirit of God within us. And we have new hearts. So that we'll find gradually, day by day, our desires are changing. We want to please Him. We want to live for Him. You see, God had a great plan and He had the plan from before the beginning. It was a plan to allow humans to absolutely mess everything up completely because he had a plan to deal with it. Why does God take so long? I suppose one answer to that is that if God didn't take a long time, we would think, well, we'd find a way to take the credit. There's a place in the Bible, I'll give you the reference later in the email, uh, but there's a place where it says, the reason that I tell you things in advance is because otherwise you'd give credit to your idols. And so instead of just doing it, I give you predictions over hundreds of years so that you can be blown away and say only God could have done that. In another place it says, the reason that I don't give you everything all at once is because then you would be overwhelmed and you're not ready and so I know what I'm doing, you need to trust me. And I suppose as we look at the big picture from Genesis right the way through the Bible, yes, it takes a long time to have the fulfillment. But when we see how God completely addresses the problem and that his season of preparation was exactly what was needed, doesn't that give us some confidence that he knows what he's doing in the little stuff of our lives? That maybe he needs to prepare us for something rather than give it immediately? That maybe he needs to shape our character or chip off some rough edges or, or work on us in some way. Maybe the reason we pray and we hear nothing is because God loves us too much to give it all at once. Ah, that can sound so trite and so simple. And when you're in the midst of something where it seems so simple, God could do that and it would be solved. Sometimes it's agonizing to trust. But that's what we're invited to do. To trust a God who has a plan that he establishes through promise and then for thousands of years prepares and when the fullness of time comes, he acts. If it's true for our salvation, then how much more, how much easier is it true in our daily lives? 
in the circumstances we face financially, relationally, at work, in our health. God knows what he's doing. We can trust him. And the Old Testament, as big as it is, proves that. 